0: way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast As Always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, March the 8th, 2017. And yes, this is a new episode of the Survival Podcast after a couple Rewind shows, episode 1963. And as a Wednesday, it'll be an interview day. I have a person coming on the air. Uh, We'll just simply call Andrew. That's his real first name. We're not going to give his last name because he is still, on some level, active duty in law enforcement. Um, And he's a great guy. He is a 55-year-old retired law enforcement officer. Uh, gave 27 years of his life to law enforcement. Also spent time in the United States military, uh, both as uh, infantry and ended up in S2. Uh, did some other things in between the two of them, and uh, at one point was the um, in management of a major Metro Atlanta law enforcement agency with more than a thousand employees and a service population of 700,000 people. And why is he? Why is he coming on the show today? For a variety of reasons, he wants to talk about uh, how we should interact with law enforcement uh, when we are in a position where we have to, whether we've been stopped for a traffic ticket, whether there's a natural disaster going on. How do you effectively interact with law enforcement officials without ending up in um, some sort of a confrontation that you don't want to be in? How to deal with difficult and simple interactions with law enforcement. He also wants to talk about the fact that he actually agrees with many of the positions that that, that I express here, and he also wants to talk about how we can um, how we can define officers that are oath breakers without resulting to what I do, which is profanity when I call them oath breaking pieces of shit. Uh, I'm interested to hear what he has to say there, and I, I am willing to stipulate that there may be better ways um, publicly. Uh, to get the point across than saying that, because that can be alienating, however, I say it because I view a person with a badge and the authority of the state and a uniform conveying that authority and a, a, a publicly paid-for vehicle and a taser and a, 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 a big giant stick that they can beat you with and a gun and pepper spray uh, and a bunch of other guys that will come and immediately back them and assume they're right when they do who then turns around and breaks the law himself to be one of the lowest forms of life on the planet. I do not think that's Andrew. He would not be on the air. And I bet you he agrees with what I just said there. So I'd like to know what we could say about it. Because in his application, he said, without calling them bad apples, because I guess he at least gets my point, that 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 is so derogatory, that is so demeaning to those who have been abused by bad law enforcement officers. It is so disrespectful to people who have either been beaten or put in jail or prison inappropriately or who are alive now but have family members or friends who were killed by bad law enforcement. It is, it is, it is just reprehensible to use that term in my view because it takes something that I think is a major concern and makes it off like we shouldn't even worry about it. So I'd like to talk to all, uh, to Andrew, about all of that and more today in a very respectful conversation. I believe he he wants to help, and I believe that that most law enforcement are good people, and I think that's what we need to understand first. They are people first, and law enforcement second. But I think there's a problem there, and I'd, I'd very much like to figure out how we can actually get a true dialogue going. Uh, between good law enforcement and the community that's concerned about what's going on wrong, and uh, people like Black Lives Matter and, and, and other groups like that, I don't. Really, I, I think they're more of a problem than a, than, a, than a help. And I think that they exist to ensure that this conversation that we're going to have today can't take place, but we're going to freaking have it anyway. And I think there'll be some good advice here. And I don't know yet. I may or may not challenge uh, Andrew on some of his advice on how to deal with law enforcement. Because I'll tell you that this is the way I deal with law enforcement. If you stop me for a speeding violation or failing to yield or a stop sign or something like that, hello, how are you? What are you doing today? That's how the cops usually approach it. Oh, I'm fine. Uh, Can I help you? Yeah, I need your license and registration. you know why I pulled you over? I don't care if you know why I pulled you you over or not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. Because I'm not going to admit that I've done something. Oh, you were doing this. Oh, was I? I didn't realize that. Here's my license. Here's my registration. And where are you going? Well, I don't know. That's really important that I tell you that. That's what I want to say. But you know what I usually say? Home shopping, whatever I am actually doing. Because if they've stopped me for something like that, then that that's fine, uh, you know. And, uh, and you know, are you in any kind of special hurry today, or something? You usually say that does there an excuse for why you are speeding or whatever. No, no, unless I I do have one. And then um, anything else, it's just you don't need to know that. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. It comes down, and I won't tell the story for brevity here, but I've been at least once in my life directly lied to, to my face by law enforcement officers who I was working in good faith with to assist. And that means that I, I know that there's no benefit to me divulging any information that's not necessary, so I don't do that. And I'm looking forward to talking to uh, Andrew about all of this and more, and we'll have him on in just a bit. Before that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. And with that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1963 because the episode is 1963. We have A Presidency of a Thousand Days, contributed by Alex Shrugged. We have On Fire for Freedom of Faith, contributed by Southpaw Ben. And we have A Shocking Experiment in Psychology, contributed by Alex Shrugged. I'm not going to read the On Fire for Freedom of Faith, but that's about a Buddhist monk who set himself on fire and sat in a meditative pose while he burned up. Uh, protesting was going on in, uh, in South Vietnam. Uh, so that's, that's worth reading. Notable births this year. Rand Paul, U.S. Senator. Joe Scarborough, U.S. Representative and co-host of Morning Joe on MSNBC. Uh, in sports, Bobby Bonilla, Carl Malone, Michael Jordan, and Charles Barkley are all born this year. In entertainment, Jed Zia Dax. That would be Terry Farrell. Star Trek to Space Nine, uh, was born this year. Vanessa Williams, first Black Miss America. Whitney Houston, who died at age 48 of uh, a drug blackout uh drowning. And George Michael, age fifty-three, died in 2016. Singer Sommer died in his sleep on Christmas Day. Uh too many other actors and actresses to may- name. Year in film The Great Escape, Lilies of the Field and PT-109. This year in music, She Loves You, Yeah, 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 by the Beatles. It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To by Leslie Gore, and Surfing USA by The Beach Boys. Well, let's take a look at a presidency of a 1,000 days. Quote, they've killed my husband. I have his brains in my hands, end quote. First Lady Jackie Kennedy as she crawls across the trunk of the limousine. President John F. Kennedy is shot this year in Dallas, Texas, with his open-top limousine as it passes by the book depository and the grassy knoll. But before we get into that, let's review the 1,030 days of this presidency. In his inaugural speech, he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He wasn't the first to say that, but he said it best. Kennedy initiated small and targeted welfare programs that worked. And if a little is good, a lot must be better. But that is for the future. Kennedy stepped up U.S. involvement in Vietnam to stop the communists, and he tapped Martin Luther King's telephones because the reverend had a communist on his staff. There was one, but not the one accused. Kennedy declared that we should go to the moon. And Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a Berliner, not a jelly donut. That is an urban legend, but a funny one. He failed at the Bay of Pigs and brought us to the brink of nuclear annihilation. He is a war hero with his own movie playing in the theaters right now, PT-109. He has a storybook marriage, but he's a crass womanizer. With every president, he is a mixed bag of the good and the bad, and now his brains are splattered across the trunk of his limousine, and his wife struggles to gather the pieces of her husband's life and her own. Who did this? A man is caught 80 minutes later, and then he is shot. The conspiracy theories will never end. My Take by Alex Shrugged I cried that day. I cried for a week. I watched the funeral procession with Jack Jr. saluting his father's coffin, passed in review. He was a good boy. People wanted to make JFK into a saint, but he was far from that. He was a conservative. However, I laugh when President Clinton called JFK his hero. If only he had listened to his hero. The man arrested for the shooting was a communist named Lee Harvey Oswald. Did he do it? I think so, but was there a second shooter in the Grassley Knoll somewhere? A single shooter fits the evidence. If there was a second shooter, he must be 80 years old by now. Let it go. The nightclub owner, Jack Ruby, shot Oswald while he was being transferred from a more secure location. Gee, thanks. That is what controversial prisoners are transported, transported with bulletproof vests today. As I recall, I wasn't broken up about Oswald's death. I am more of a rule of law guy than a guy today. I think I'm better off. Um, so let me tell you my my big hiccup in the uh, the Kennedy shooting. There was a gurney at Parkland Hospital that had transported Governor Conley and they found this single bullet that they were able to say was the bullet that did all this damage bouncing around um, uh, in that gurney because it fell out of his leg. Sorry. No. (laughs) Wrong. Um, Was that bullet the bullet? A lot of people say it wasn't damaged enough to be the bullet. I've seen photos of it many times. I am skeptical that a bullet that hit that much bone is that pristine, but it's possible. You know it's not possible? For a bullet to fall out of a guy's leg. It doesn't work. Living or dead, it doesn't work. Um, I invite you, the next time anything is stuck in you, uh, don't go sticking something in you, but a, a, a briar, uh, uh, a, I don't know, a thorn from a rose, a sandbur, uh, a splinter, anything that gets stuck into your skin, let alone your muscle, uh, when you pull it out, see what it's like. See if it just comes out easily. Uh, bullets don't just fall out of of people. Uh, they just don't. It doesn't happen. So I believe, and, and this doesn't mean that Oswald didn't do it. It doesn't mean that Oswald didn't uh, be, wasn't the only shooter. I believe that bullet was placed in that gurney. Because that is the only probable explanation that I can come up with. Now, the other big controversy with this is could one person with that rifle get off that many shots that fast reasonably accurately? Well, I had a teacher named Mr. Larson. He was actually Dr. Larson. Um, This guy had a doctorate in American history and was our history teacher. And that's not something usually happens in a small town like Pottsville. I think he just wanted to live there. And he grew up there. And if you grew up in Pennsylvania, uh, a male of that age, you were a deer hunter. He also served in the military, and he did his doctoral thesis on the Kennedy assassination. And during his research, he happened across an Italian Carcano rifle of the exact type that was found in uh, in the depository and was allegedly what, what Oswald used to shoot the president. He bought it, uh, which, you know, in college he didn't have a lot of money, but he did buy it. He also... Um, then went out and had to find a box of ammunition. And I remember it said the ammunition for it cost more than the gun. And went out and did some shooting with it. And a- after doing so, said that there is absolutely no doubt that somebody with any level of reasonable training and rifle marksmanship could have gotten off those three shots accurately enough that they might have hit the targets as, as defined. So I, I buy that possibility too, which many people don't. I have, you know, that's the most credible research I've ever heard done on that. So I don't know exactly what happened, but I do know that bullets don't fall out of people. And I defy you to show me someplace sometime where it actually did happen somewhere else, other than this one magic bullet time. My take by Jack Spirico want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade, or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a uh, free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikrantala sells that every day for 49 bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free, that would cost you 50 bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. All right, folks. And with that, I want to say, Andrew, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast.
2: Thank you, sir. Hi. Good to be on.
1: Hey man, um, you're on to talk to us today about contacts with law enforcement, um, and, uh, the view from Leos themselves to some of the issues that we discussed here on the show. I'm excited to discuss all that with you, but my first question to any guest is always like, tell us about your background. You know, kind of start out with, uh, you're in, you're in 11th grade in study hall, uh, trying to get the courage up to ask a girl out or something like that, and, uh, you know, you're thinking about what you're going to do with your life, and how do you end up as, as a police officer, you know, 30 years later?
2: Well, being a police officer is something I've always wanted to do, even when I was little. Uh, there were several things I wanted to do. But uh, after high school, I went to the University of Illinois, um, ended up getting talked into doing a dual-degree program, Uh, so that I'd pick up a graduate as well as a bachelor's degree and essentially uh, ran out of money. Uh, I was putting myself through school and uh, I was getting tired of eating ramen noodles and uh, a friend of mine was an instructor in ROTC at U of I and he said, uh, you know what you should do? Go talk to a recruiter. So (laughs) I ended up doing that and Believe it or not, uh, the military and the U.S. Army has a little bit of a reverse GI bill because I had begged and borrowed my way through school, ran up student loan debt. Doesn't, doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah. Uh, but uh, if I enlisted, uh, the uh, the Army would forgive one-third of my student loans per year of active duty. So for three years of active duty, I uh, would get my student loans taken care of. So I went into the United States Army, um, went into the infantry, uh, took an airborne option, but uh, stayed at Fort Benning. They they kept me there. I worked in a unit that was attached to the 18th Airborne Corps. Uh, spent three years at Fort Benning, and then also went into the National Guard after active duty. I had family on my mom's side that's all from Georgia, and since I was down there at Fort Benning, uh, I ended up. Staying in Georgia, I uh, I guess the army made me appreciate a little bit more of um, doing things as opposed to uh, academic involvement. And when I thought about what I wanted to do after the army, I went into police work. Interesting. And that was in 1990.
1: Okay, so that's a long time. 27 years, I think, is what I saw in your notes. Um, and, yes, and and I've gotten the impression from your outline that you had retired from law but You're still active duty, and that's why we're not giving your uh, uh, last name so you can speak freely here today. Um,
2: so yes, I, I, I retired from one agency, and now I'm working for another smaller agency part-time.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, my brother-in-law has his retirement plan is basically go back to work. He's, uh, he's close to that time himself, and... Uh, he actually wants to go be a campus police officer for uh, a college here locally, and uh, he's got. I'm a
2: campus police officer.
1: Oh, that's what you're doing too. That's, that's it's very.
2: Great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I, I love working with with the kids, um, especially where I work at. It's a it's a technical college, and uh, a lot of the things you talk about on your show, as far as getting education for uh, for for jobs. Um, a lot of good kids there now that are trying to get their skills set up cool uh, in various cool. trades and so forth
1: so well, what he tells good me kids. is that they actually like older cops like you for that because you don't get keyed up on things and you're dealing with stuff that just needs to be generally de-escalated. and I think it's one of Absolutely. one of his former chiefs has gone over to this school, so uh, I think he's up in like three years and it coincides with his daughter going to college, so uh, you know maybe she'll go there that type of thing.
2: Anyway, Absolutely.
1: anyway um, from your perspective now, what makes people choose to become a police officer and what's kind of the difference between people that they think they're going to like, if they go there, they do it for a while and they quit, and others that choose to make it a career? And, and I mean that from the angle of the good guys that make it a career, that in spite of some of the things they really don't like, they stick it out, they stay there, and they do their best that they can for their entire time.
2: Sure, and uh, broad categories, but some get into it, and for lack of a better phrase, I'll call them, they're do-gooders. They're oriented towards social service. Uh, they, uh, they think they can really make a difference in people's lives, and police work can make a difference in people's lives, but it's not, it's not really social service oriented. It can be the front gate to social service programs but generally really can't fix society problems and um, then when it's a particularly good-hearted person um, in field police work we do a lot of mean things to people Um, So sometimes people need to get arrested Uh, sometimes you know unfortunately uh, there's fights, we hurt people Um, you gotta have a little bit of that aggressive streak in you at times, and some people just never really become comfortable with that, and it's not what I thought it was going to be. It's not like it is on TV. Some are in the field because it's a job. It has benefits, sometimes pretty good benefits, um, a good retirement, as we've been talking about, and they would be content in other similar employment with similar Uh, benefits, and so forth. Um, Doesn't mean that they don't make good police officers, but um, it's a good job, and I like what I do. It's okay. And some of them stay. Some of them might move on when something better comes uh, towards them. But uh, there's uh, others, and a fair amount, uh, that really do believe in law and order, public service, and what the job is. Um, a small part of law enforcement is actually making arrests, um, but I will say um, that when you do take someone to jail that really needs to be in jail, uh, there is some, uh, something rewarding about that. Uh, they have the, uh, a passion for the job. They have that ethic of being a guardian and warrior ethic for, uh, for people, for the community. And then, without a doubt, some are in it for the badge in power, and um, I don't know whether that makes up for whatever psychological deficiencies they have, or they're just real pro-government, pro-status type people that like to be in that role that they can tell people what to do, they can uh, be an agent of the state and enforce things because that's what the law says and so forth, and... Um, I guess that's kind of like the broad categories of the people that I've encountered in my years of service. Um, it, it, as I said, sometimes the do-gooders and sometimes the people that are just in it for the job—they don't always last. Um, the people with a passion seem to do, and I tell you, the ones that are in it for the badge and power—they um, they dig in like ticks sometimes, and, <laughs> and they'll be in it for the long haul too.
1: Well, I'd like to thank you for that answer. I think that anybody that was skeptical that they were going to get the straight uh, shooting from you just got unskeptical, and I appreciate that. Um, Can can we dig in then a little bit to what you would call the culture of police officers? What is that? that, Because it is a hell of a fraternity. I have enough friends in law enforcement that I've seen it. Uh, I've actually been uh, several times invited into that fraternity. With you know, we have a reserve officer program and stuff like that. And when I look at the requirements to it, I got to admit I'm not I'm not willing to make the commitment to do it. But there definitely is a culture uh, in law enforcement, a subculture.
2: Absolutely, and it's a little bit because you're in the military. There's some similar aspects there. So everybody sure. that's in the military can relate to some of this. But. uh uh, probably first and foremost is us versus them, developed and it develops pretty quick. And and the them is everybody just about. It's kind of funny, but uh, the the them is society, government, administration, other units, and even other shifts. You'll have that you know the oh, those day shift guys. All they do is eat donuts and slack off and sit in parking lots. They don't do. You know, you even, even have rivalries uh, inside your unit for what other people do. Sure, but uh, certainly, um, uh, certainly, with things being driven by uh, the media issues right now, they're really that feeling of us versus them is developing a little bit stronger. I think, um, with them being mainly uh, society actions and some government actions and so forth. So that certainly does um, exist and exists in a strong way. Uh, generally, we're our own worst critics uh, behind the scenes, um, even though sometimes lousy police officers make the news. What's said about them on the news is, is pale in comparison to what's said uh, amongst the officers. Um, it's said that we eat our own young, um, We can be really brutal on uh, young officers and when they make mistakes. And like you've mentioned in shows in the military, we hate slackers. Uh, need people to pull their weight because that whole thing about the thin blue line, uh, it is the thin blue line. So, hate slackers. We make mistakes. And uh, we're human. And there's a saying, In law enforcement, that you're only as good as your last call, meaning that no matter what you've done in the past, no matter how many good things, if you make a really bad decision, and there's been bad decisions made, um, all that you did good can be gone in an instant for a bad decision. And bad decisions, you know, that can sometimes result in termination from your employment or even in certain circumstances it can result in imprisonment but on other things because we're often in the public eye when someone does when an officer does make a mistake um, think, think generally doesn't seem to be any consideration at times for the whole record of that person um, I saw a news article recently where an officer rear-ended a car and that's bad for a police officer to, you know, (laughs) rear-end a car in front of them. It was a pretty bad wreck. Nobody was killed, but it was a pretty good wreck. And there was a lot of criticism about, you know, police officers are supposed to protect us and they drive and look at what this officer did and so forth. But it turns out that officer had been working at night and then had gotten up early and had gone to court and was driving back from court and had a bad reaction, was just tired, and ate the rear end of the car in front of him. And, you know, no mention was made of the case the officer had to go to court on. It was a pretty good case he made, and none of that, officer, rear end of the car, what an idiot. And, uh... You know, that kind of hits home and and generates that us-versus-them ethic. Um, The other thing is, after a while, we do tend to become very callous. Uh, We see the same things, deal with the same things. It becomes routine for us, and we sometimes forget, and I stress for the folks that work for me, You sometimes forget that what we've seen many times, or what we've dealt with many times, for most of the people that we serve, that's the first time they've ever dealt with anything like that. Whether it's some type of family dispute, family violence, or death in the family, or uh, the you know the arrest of a family member, somewhat to us this is all routine and just part of what we do. But to those we serve. Um, it can be a fairly traumatic incident for them, and we need to keep that in mind, and I think we lose sight of that quite a bit. Um, not sure if you touched on it, but have you heard of the sheepdog theory?
1: Uh, definitely, definitely.
2: Yeah, and uh, just, just a real quick recap on that from Colonel Grossman. Uh, military and law enforcement in society serve the role of sheepdogs. Uh, the people are sheep, and sheep don't really like the sheepdog because we make them move around. Um, well, the sheep, I mean, life. part of
1: that is that the sheepdog's biggest job is to prevent the she- pr- protect the sheep from the wolf. And the funny thing about Correct. the sheepdog is he looks a lot like the wolf, and he acts a lot like the wolf. Because to combat Absolutely. the wolf, he has to be that.
2: Absolutely. And of course the wolves don't like the sheepdog. Of course not. So, <laughs> so, so, right. So you're in that situation where the sheep that you're serving don't really like you. Uh, of course the wolf that you're protecting them from doesn't really like you. But when the wolf really does show up, all the sheep want to pile on your back. So, um uh, I think the, the sheepdog theory kind of explains the role of, uh, of, uh, the military law enforcement, the warriors in our, uh, society pretty well. And just, uh, you know, just, just on that guardian and warriors ethic, um, and putting aside, I love libertarian principles, I like ANCAP principles, putting aside social theory for just a second, there are some really bad Wolves in society. I've met some. Not every criminal is a huge wolf. And some criminals aren't, aren't even a puppy. But, uh, but there are, there really are wolves at the door out there. And, um, they're ready for us. They really are. The, 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 the uh, top tier wolves are, are ready for us. Not all police officers are really ready to meet them. And, um, uh, you know, part of what we were just discussing about me retiring, part of the reason why I retired from full-time law enforcement serving in a major agency is I recognize uh, age has caught up with me. I'm, I'm old and gray. So um, uh, that's, you know, in a broad brush sense, once again, that's the general culture of police officers in our community. And and by the way, when I say police officers, to my brothers and sisters out there who are sheriff deputies, uh, agents, and so forth, I'm just using police officers as a general term for law enforcement
1: officer. Sure, I understand that. Uh, you, you touched on a few things that I'd like to visit. I, I think there's a, a large group of people out there that are much like myself. We're extremely supportive of Good law enforcement officers, even though we disagree with some of the things that you're asked to do, like we think that certain things should be legal, that are illegal, etc., but we accept that that is the system we're in, but then we have these people that you've touched on, people that really should not be doing the job, and you talk about how hard you guys, Eat Your Young, etc., are behind the scenes. But there seems to be no acknowledgement in any serious way from the law enforcement community that these people exist other than kind of the, the patronizing, well, it's a few bad apples, and it's, it's, it's more than a few. I mean, I think there's about uh, two million law enforcement officers in the United States when we include everybody like you just did, you know and one percent of two million is a shitload of people. And those people Absolutely. Have, they have a badge, they have a uniform. They have a taser. They have a bunch of other guys that will come back them up, because when they get there, they don't know any. They just know one of ours is in trouble. They've got a gun. They've got pepper spray. They've got a car that they can take you to jail in. They've got handcuffs. They have all of this all of this additional authority and privilege that the average citizen does not have, and they have been entrusted with it, and I feel like if we're ever, you know, we have to put a, groups like Black Lives Matter and all—they just go off in the corner as a hate group of lunatics—and and I'm not really interested in what they have to say, even when they make a salient point occasionally, because all of the other crap just destroys it. But until I think we can get to a point where law enforcement can admit the problem, it's very hard for the citizen that's in the middle to trust that the problem's being corrected. What do you say to that?
2: in general i think part of it would be a public relations issue because it's not communicated very well part of it from part of it is also that there's uh, there's a little bit of a learning curve a huge learning curve from being a rookie police officer to a competent police officer and there's a lot of things that progressive departments do to develop a police officer into competency in their early years, like I said, though, that doesn't mean that they don't make bad decisions and bad mistakes. Uh, good agencies have some checks and balances to, to try and uh, mentor those people and develop them into good police officers. The other plain fact of the matter is, and this deals a little bit with administration of law enforcement agencies. Other fact of the matter is, is, from a management perspective, you need warm bodies to man beat, to answer calls, to, to do the functions of the, of the agency, to investigate accidents, to take the shoplifting report, to, um, uh, go to the lab music calls, all the all the calls that really don't require a huge skill set, but if you don't respond to them, there's going to be an outcry of lack of service. And law enforcement agencies are willing to accept, I believe, law enforcement agencies are willing to accept mediocre performance merely to keep staffing up to complete essential functions. And and until um, you. You touched on it briefly. Part of the problem too is God, police officers are expected to do so much and know so much that you have a guy like I just said. He could go from answering a shoplifting call at a uh, at a Walmart, and then the next call that he's going to is somebody who is beating the fire out of his wife, and then mm. 18 neighbors are calling in, and and so that the, the the job is challenging, but I think there, in dealing with issues as a supervisor and manager, I I have tried to get people out of the agency, and the response has been, you know, we also have manpower requirements to answer calls and Man. so forth. So so, that's a, it's a convoluted and blended. Answer, um, but but you know what I understand you know,
1: it. I think it's a little more grave when this person has all this authority we've talked about. But I've I've run companies and I've had people I've wanted to fire and I could have fired them, but until I could find someone to do the things with which they're actually doing okay with, I would hold on to to bad employees just long enough to replace them, and when you add in you know unions and bureaucracy layers and things. And then, you know, you're trying to maintain a headcount of two or three hundred or something like that, depending on the size of a department. I imagine it gets difficult. It it doesn't really fix the problem, but it is something that I guess, you know, you can you can sort of at least understand um to a degree. And I I, I get it. I get it. It it's not necessarily a satisfactory answer, but it is the answer.
2: Yeah, it's 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 the answer, but um, uh certainly public pressure and good communications from a law enforcement agency can can mitigate a lot of that.
1: Definitely. If,
2: if there is if the public demands good service and and holds uh the elected officials accountable and police administration accountable, which has happened, uh, that will improve law enforcement services. So, I'd also kind of speaking uh,
1: up for your side say that one of the things that I have found and I just have personal knowledge just because I live so close to Dallas. I imagine this happens elsewhere. There are good police officers out there that are, that are, that are cleaning out the ranks, especially when they reach the level of like a chief or deputy chief, where they can actually have more influence. Uh, chief Brown here in Dallas routinely fired bad officers publicly via Twitter, but almost no media gave any coverage or acknowledgement to that. So when you actually had a chief that came into a department and said, we've got problems and I'm not having officers in my department that are abusing our citizens and is is, is willing to, because nobody does that in law, They, they don't get that public. And, and chief brown was public about dismissal and suspension of officers for poor conduct and the media stayed silent because it didn't fit the narrative of all police officers are heroes and, and i think that that's, that that third rail in there is the media with misrepresentation they jump all over officers on one end but yet yeah, then they they then they, then they kind of like they want to play both sides but they don't want to step into the middle where the real discussion needs to happen
2: Correct. But a whole other show, as a former public information officer, you know the answer to why the media does that. So, um, one thing, sells their time, sells print, and the uh, the chief doing a good job in firing some people, and this is why they got fired. Nobody wants to read that or listen to that on the final podcast.
1: Absolutely. So, can, can we move into a little bit about how police officers should, do, uh, et cetera, view the Constitution?
2: Sure, absolutely. Uh, just a uh, just a premise, though. So, um, you have no constitutional right to police services, and furthermore, you have no constitutional rights to good police work. So. <laughs> just by the way like if if somebody burglarized three mile farm and it's known who the burglar is but the detective or investigator messed it up did a cruddy job on the investigation and no arrest is ever made you can't sue your local police department for doing a crappy job uh, so there's there's no right to good law enforcement to having police services of course there are all sorts of rights as it pertains to the government of what we can't do as far as uh, the fourth amendment, the fifth amendment, the eighth amendment, etc. so um, also just a little reminder police departments or police officers, law enforcement as we know it today uh, preventive policing really didn't exist when the constitution was written didn't really exist in colonial times. Um, the concept of law enforcement agencies, as we have today, developed uh, 1829, uh, the London Metropolitan Police Department, to Robert Peel, Bobby's, and came over here with Boston and Philadelphia in the 1830s. So the uh, law enforcement agencies in the United States are a post-constitutional development, if you will. So um, certainly constitutional principles, because we are government, are applicable. Uh, law enforcement officers receive training in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the amendments, state constitutions, criminal law, etc. But it's, uh, I call it plug and play training, uh, having been to college and continued to Attend uh, advanced training courses and so forth. The uh, uh, police officers in uh, academies and so forth, they they are told and explained what the law is, what Constitution, what amendments are, you know, search and seizure and, and questioning and so forth. But none of the none of the theory. Uh, that you would get from more advanced training is really given. So as I said, I call it plug and play. You can do this because the Fourth Amendment says this. You can't do that because the Fifth Amendment says this. You can't do this because this case law, this judge said this in this circumstance. So it's, it's, the training is, is almost, almost a technical type training as opposed to, uh, educational training not sure if I'm making a good distinction there, but um, some, some officers uh, take it upon themselves personally, or they attend better training, and they start to understand uh, some of the constitutional theory behind the amendments and the theories that stand behind case law that the Supreme Court writes or that an appellate court might write so that that they understand they're better able to adapt to different circumstances that it may seem like because this case law says I can't do this in this situation, change some of the factors around, very subtle factors, and what you can't do, you now can do. And conversely, something that you think you can do if you change a factor or two around you really can't do. So I think I, I wish there could be better training um, for law enforcement officers to understand the concept and principles and theory behind the law rather than it being uh, studying the criminal law statutes, taking a test, studying the Constitution, you know, what amendment says you cannot conduct an unlawful search and seizure. You know, it's the Fourth Amendment. You know, I wish there's more training a on, okay, well, more. you know,
1: you know, you're not supposed to do that. You know what amendment says it. Well, what does that actually mean? Correct. Yeah. I, I have a theory on that. And I think it's, you, you talked about similarities between military and law enforcement. Now, I I imagine that each law enforcement agency, if they have an oath for their officers, is maybe a little bit different depending on state and things like that. But when when I was sworn into the military, I took an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. So help me God. No, No ifs, ands, or buts about it and a lot of lip service is put in it. but as a soldier you get absolutely unless your job specifically dictates it no real education in this this document you've sworn to uphold and defend and with law enforcement you have to have some obviously but to me the people in charge that want you to do what you're told they don't benefit from you having a deep analysis of whether or not what you've been told to do is or is not constitutional and on some levels, I can understand it because if I've told you arrest that person right and you think what they did is you know you have no constitutional basis for that arrest well the court figures that out I need you to arrest them because we could have a situation developing here if that person's not taken into custody we could have a riot or, or something like that but on the other side of it is when you have like a standing order that's unconstitutional that officers are, are enforcing um, I think that there's I know you said law enforcement is post um, constitutional, and the form we have is today, but there 's checks and balances in the system, and I think one of those checks and balances is will the enforcers enforce the law and if If you have a standing order that seems largely going to constitute something second amendment related and, and your sheriffs say we 're not doing that, and not one one can only do so much right, but when you know the vast right. majority of your sheriffs and your chiefs say we 're not going to be doing this, that is a check on the law. But if you let that go down to the individual officer, then, you know, what, what people in charge would call that is anarchy, right? Right.
2: Um, and some of that, okay, in the actual practice of law, you know, for an immediate arrest, that usually means that there is something dynamic occurring at the time that there is the law enforcement encounter, right? So going back to my analogy, um there's a call about a domestic dispute, and one or the other has beaten the snot out of somebody. There needs to be an immediate arrest. Um, uh, uh, going to my shoplifting call, you know, I drive up into the shop into the shopping center, and loss prevention is running after a guy who's got a got a TV set in his arms. All right, the arrest has to be made right then. But in A lot of instances, there's no need for an immediate arrest and it is something that's investigated. And often before an arrest is made, sometimes the arrest warrant is reviewed by prosecutors and so forth, or the case is reviewed by a superior to make sure that uh, the fundamentals of the case are in place. And part of the... Part of the good thing about being a local law enforcement officer, about being an officer that's involved in field police work, is um, a lot of the stuff is pretty cut and dry about things that you're dealing with, and you're making those decisions. Uh, Little known fact, in the federal government, particularly with, like, the Secret Service and their fraud division and the FBI, before those guys uh, secure an arrest warrant, the warrant has to be reviewed by a Department of Justice attorney before they even oil up their handcuffs, um, uh, they have to have their documents reviewed by a lawyer, which presents its own problem. <laughs> Once again, uh, sometimes attorneys don't know the Constitution either. Uh, so, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, and some of the... And, and you're right about some laws that Maybe the, the ones I'm, I'm thinking of weren't necessarily a constitutional issue, but uh, thankfully the local government that I've worked for has been pretty mellow on local ordinances. But we had one ordinance where for a period of time they made it illegal for bicyclists to ride side by side in a certain area because yeah. there had been complaints. From other people about it was hard for them to enter their subdivision when bicyclists were riding side by side down to certain areas. So this commissioner was, but do you know how many people were issued citations for riding side by side on the roadway on their bicycles?
1: Uh, I'm thinking very like, few,
2: <laughs> like z- like zero. Okay, so, yeah. So yeah, there, yeah, yeah, there's they like you know when. <laughs> Either a good thing or a bad thing, but if we ever had that much time on our hands that we could worry about people riding side-by-side side on bicycles near a subdivision entrance, then the world is really good.
1: Well, I mean, uh, and I feel like and that. I think, is, I think most people feel like that sometimes when they hear something like, and I know this is not the cop's fault, but, you know, police went out and stopped a seven-year-old from having her freaking lemonade stands. like, don't you have a crack house to surveil or something like that? Like, But I think what people don't understand is how complaint-driven the system is.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause now, remember I told you there are some status and once again, in full honesty, there's probably some police officer somewhere who thinks they did a damn good job that day <laughs> by by taking down that lemonade stand because somebody would have gotten you know, either shorted an ounce of lemonade or the lemonade wasn't pure or the water wasn't purified. I'm sure there's somebody. But by and large, the last thing that most decent police officers would want to deal with is dealing with um, complaint-driven issues um, that have nothing to do with providing quality service to the community for for what our primary mission is, which is – uh, to protect and serve, keep the peace, and uh, try and help uh, communities function better. So, couldn't agree with you more.
1: Let, let's try to talk about some of the interactions that happen between citizens and law enforcement, because there's times I see, you know, a video of a cop, and I think that cop was way out of line, but I also think to myself, and it doesn't excuse the officer, because I know I'm going to hear from my, my purest audience members on this, but had the person not acted like a freaking tard. It probably would have never went there, so let's go through some various things that happen where you have to deal with a police officer. Let's say being stopped for uh, as a suspect for a minor crime, be it a traffic stop or you know something that's not you, you we think you committed murder and, and you're being questioned about it. How should the citizen respond to that engagement
2: right, and once again. A good, solid police officer, no matter how someone is acting to them, should maintain the communication high ground. And sometimes, being humans, officers miserably fail at that. So well,
1: Maybe Lee hold you right there, because I want to uh, talk about one officer that I remember a video of that I thought was outstanding. He, he pulled a guy over for speeding, and he writes the guy a ticket. And the guy is screaming at him. He's screaming so much you can see the vehicle rocking and the cop just writes the ticket and he's completely calm and he hands him the ticket and instead of signing the ticket, the guy tears the ticket up and throws it on the ground. So he pulls out his book. He starts writing him another ticket and he hands him the other ticket. Well, the guy really goes ballistic because the second ticket was for littering. And he never, he never engaged the guy with any kind of hostility. And I know there's times, like, because you don't know if the guy has a gun or something, but, like, to me, that was textbook. And then it turned out that, that there was actually some critique of that, that, like, he was escalating the situation by writing the second ticket. I don't know. I, I thought it was funny.
2: No, and a little background on that. That was a mainstay trooper. That incident became part of a supervision and management curriculum aspect that trooper had been a little bit of a problem employee with his communication skills. So they sent him to verbal judo. (laughs) They sent him to verbal judo training, and what he did there was, a lot of it was right out of the verbal judo book. Really? And, yeah. So, so yes. But that is, you know, ideally, uh, when somebody else is losing their cool you keep your cool. Um, that's that's an employment expectation. That is a job requirement.
1: Um, anyway, I'm sorry I sidetracked you there. We're, we're talking about you've been pulled over. You're being yeah. investigated for a minor crime. How yeah. how do we handle how do we handle that interaction? Yep. Yeah.
2: So uh, cooperate on basic facts like your real name, not a nickname, uh, your address and date of birth. Um, we write reports, and that information is needed for reports. Um, in most contacts with law enforcement, you're required to provide fundamental information. Um, so, if you're going to stand up for yourself because you think something's not right, playing games or refusing to identify yourself isn't always the best tactic to take because. Oftentimes, when people are trying to avoid identifying themselves, there's a warrant out for his or her arrest, and we think you're playing games with your name to avoid getting arrested for an outstanding warrant. So we start tracking a different way, and it's just a pretty big impediment to communication. Um, in today's society, rightly or wrongly, you're pretty much required to give your fundamental name, date of birth, and current address to a law enforcement officer. So... Give the officer what he needs to to uh, engage in whatever you're being stopped for or discussed with. Um, the um, the other thing is is whether you read Miranda warnings or not. Um, you don't need to say anything to an officer. And you know, remember the high school civics class you might have went through. You can politely decline to answer questions if you're not... And I'm not trying to give a primer for how to commit crimes. I'm just saying that um, if you're stopped and you've done nothing wrong and an officer is trying to answer, ask you some pointed questions about things and, and you don't want to carry on a discussion, you don't have to. You can disengage from that discussion and you know ascertain, like, what if you know am I free to go or why are you detaining me? Uh, but whether you read Miranda or not, you don't have to answer questions. On the flip side though, if for some reason you're in proximity to where something has happened and for whatever reason uh, you fit the description of my shoplifter from the Walmart. Even though you didn't, you're not the shoplifter, but you fit the description and you're being asked questions, even though you don't have to answer the questions, it might really be advantageous for you to cooperate a little bit so that the issue can get cleared up. Does that make some sense?
1: It makes sense. It also kind of – and I've always struggled with this myself in in advising people in a way to conduct myself because it it also makes me think of a a, a kind of a debate in in a college classroom where a lawyer got up first and explained why there was no advantage to you ever saying anything to 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 law enforcement without counsel. And the law enforcement officer who got up and rebutted it, it started out with acknowledging the fact that everything the guy said was accurate. Right? So, like, you, you could uh-huh. give away a piece of information, be innocent, and that information could still implicate you because you don't know what the cop knows when he's talking to you. And I know for a fact that law enforcement officers lie to people. I mean, I I hope you're not going to tell me they don't because then this conversation will will go completely negative, you know, because I've had people, we don't lie to people. Yet you're trained to lie. I've seen it happen. We are trained. Right? Thank you.
2: Thank you for saying that so much, sir. It's an interview technique. Yeah. And... uh, Yes, but uh, yeah, we're, we're we're allowed to to uh, lie to people, and uh,
0: usually,
2: usually deceptive. Investi- when when you use deception and use lies, it's usually in higher level investigations. When because one thing. It's kind of like the reverse of an attorney never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. Yeah, you don't want to toss out the lie unless you already know what your facts are. Yeah, because because what I'm because um, this could be a whole nother show. Yeah, yeah, let's not go how, too deep in that.
1: But here's <laughs> yeah, here's how I mean yeah. that. So so I'm I'm driving down the road. I'm ten over. I get pulled over by a police officer. You know, they come. you license and registration. Here you go. No problem. I'm never going to deny that because you're driving. That's their job. You're required. Fine. Here you go. License, registration, proof of insurance. Where are you going? I usually say shopping, home, whatever, because that just deescalates the situation. My honest opinion is it's none of your effing business where I'm going. But I also know if I – and I wouldn't say it that way, but if I said I don't really want to tell you, I know that that immediately – like. Why would you do that? that starts to you know perk up the you know either I'm dealing with a you know one of these constitutionalist nut jobs or I'm dealing with somebody that has something to hide um, so I, I generally do that but then there's part of me that feels like it really isn't your business and it's not really in my best interest if something's going on I don't know about to give you that information and I can't remember that exact interview but when I listened to that attorney everything he said made sense you know um, so you could say where are you coming from I tell you where I'm coming from you're looking for someone that was coming from there I don't know that and I'm better you know if you have nothing on me I'm better off just here's my license registration if you want to write me a ticket the other side of it I almost never get a ticket because I'm always really cordial, and yeah, and I didn't real, you know, well, do you know why I pulled you over? I always say no, because then I admit what I did, yeah. right? No, I, I didn't well, I was. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, and, and 90% of the time that I've been pulled over, probably more, uh, for a minor traffic infraction, I've left with a verbal or a written warning. So you can cut your nose off to spite your face, I guess is what I'm trying to say.
2: True. True, absolutely, and you know, on that example whether you cooperate or don't cooperate, um, you know, all a police officer needs to arrest someone is probable cause, which isn't proof beyond reasonable doubt. Um, it's a it's a fairly high bar to satisfy, but uh, I do remember it was not my case, but I was in court waiting for my case to be called, and this. Very similar situation happened where somebody just decided to be belligerent to the officer and wouldn't cooperate. Then once the case came to court and with the attorney, uh, there was a perfectly reasonable, rational explanation as why this person was not involved with the crime that that person got arrested with. And the judge went off on that person, just went off. For the amount of time and effort that was wasted uh, on this, because the the person wasn't willing to communicate with the investigating officers on what happened, and furthermore, the attorney never attempted to bring the information in well ahead of a court proceeding to get all this put on a dead docket and cleared up. So the judge went off not only on the client but went off on the attorney. Yeah. So anyway. World War Story now. So, uh, and on stops, since we're talking about stops, uh, you know, vehicle searches, um, there's lots of exceptions to search warrants for vehicles. Uh, Most, unfortunately, having a great respect for the Constitution, unfortunately, there's so much case law that a reasonably competent police officer can articulate facts and circumstances to search almost anybody's car at any time. Not 100 percent, but the law, partially due to the war on drugs and so forth, uh, very favorable case law for law enforcement for vehicle searches. Um, Oftentimes, I know you're in Texas, uh, we have some known drug corridors, here in the area that I work and lots of times consent searches are just asked because if you search X number of cars over Y amount of time in this particular area, you're going to hit um, contraband, whether it's drug contraband or we also have stolen goods moving through the, the area. But uh, never... Once again believing in the Constitution and you're a law-abiding citizen and law enforcement asks you to consent to search um, feel free to say no and there's nothing wrong with making the officer make his case as to why he should search yeah you know, you, there's nothing wrong with making making an officer do his or her job. Um, and on the flip side, if you, if you know there's a problem in your area and you have an idea why police officers are doing it and you want to cooperate, that's, that's your choice entirely. But there is nothing wrong with not consenting to a search. Um worked with many officers. I've had people say no to me. Uh, offers that have worked for me. have had people say no and they don't get all twisted and it's not like they're going to go back and write you nine tickets because you refuse consent.
1: So. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, if you're being talked to and approached as a witness to an incident, because that can be a little bit like I want to help you, but that can implicate me. So something's happened you know, I don't know, the suspect's on foot, running, being pursued. Officers, stop. Did you see anything? That, ty- that type of thing.
2: Right. Um, if there's some sort of incident that happens that you're a witness to, uh, most police officers are trained in how to gather information. There is a method to their madness. Once again, it's a little bit like making sausage. You may not want to actually watch it. There is a method to their madness. Um Ask for patience because whether you realize it or not, even what you didn't see can be valuable to an investigation. So you probably do have some valuable information. Let let someone know that you were a witness and that you want to be spoken with, but don't try and butt in and be the first one or... I've got all the answers for you, you know, talk to me, talk talk to me. There's a methodology to gathering information, so I ask for patience. Um, The other thing is, if it is something that happens in public and there's several witnesses, try not to discuss what you saw or heard with anyone else. Uh, The mind's a funny thing and your memory can be altered, or additional facts can get inserted into your memory. Or conversely, you can give someone else additional facts and information that isn't part of what they saw, and they can generally believe it is part of their recollection. So, And then I guess the last thing is, um, if you do have valuable information, I know it can be time consuming at times, but don't melt away. Uh, one thing we do is, like, we go around and initially talk to people and take their driver's (laughs) licenses, say, you know, know, I have to write down your name and address, and take their driver's That keeps people from moving away. Um, but if you don't want to be a witness, say so. And there are some good reasons, um, why people don't want to be witnesses, um, Maybe, like, I know you live at Three Mile Farm, but, you know, if your two neighbors get into a bad argument and one throws a punch at the other and it's bad and the police come and you're in the awkward position of, I was out breaking my leaves and I saw Bill and Bob pop off at the court and all of a sudden they're rolling around on the ground throwing punches at each other and you know, whatever, that's disorderly conduct and public affray and simple battery and all that kind of stuff. But you know, when we leave, you still live next to Bill and Bob. So you can say, Well, I don't want to be a witness. And unless it's, you know, certain types of crimes and certain types of things, just about everybody's gonna respect that you don't want to be a witness. And additionally In certain neighborhoods, if you're seen talking to the police, um,
1: You're a snitch. You're a a snitch, right? You're you're, lower than a child molester. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. So, So you can choose not to be a witness. There's only in very few circumstances are you compelled to be a witness. And certainly that's more the exception than the rule. But I didn't want to put that out there, that not necessarily in all cases do have to be a
1: witness. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So what about interacting with law enforcement during a natural disaster? Evacuation orders, checkpoints, things like that?
2: Sure. Um, as part of 9-11 and disaster planning and so forth, there's been a Ton of disaster planning that's come out of that, and and whether the disaster is man-made or natural, who cares? It's still a disaster. But as we know, uh, plans don't survive initial contact with the enemy, so expect that everything's going to be kind of screwed up because. You can tabletop, you can write plans, you can tabletop plans. have been involved in that, but actually executing disaster plans, um, there's not a lot of dress rehearsals for that. And uh, the the time to the time to debate a plan, the time to uh, offer suggestions, uh, the time to rewrite the plan is not when the disaster happens if things were done bad or there were problems, at some point in most, uh, most functioning uh, agencies, law enforcement agencies or fire departments or emergency management agencies, there'll be some point for public feedback on what happened. But the time to rewrite the plan and offer suggestions isn't when a disaster has happened or is, or is happening. From the preparedness point of view, executing your own plan is really good. If emergency services, if emergency management doesn't need to worry about you, um, that's really great. Modern Survivalism 101. If uh, if if you can um, uh, sustain yourself elsewhere, you know, either bug out or shelter in place and you're executing your own plan, um, that's outstanding.
1: Okay. Um, What about interaction? I mean, most states where you have uh, carry legislation, there is uh, some training before you're issued a license. Some states now going to costal carry. There's there's none. Uh, I'm pulled over. I'm armed. Uh, I'm legally armed. Cops doing a routine traffic stop. Um, In some states, I am compelled to let him know I'm armed. In some states, I'm not. My feeling is I'd rather let him know because if we're interacting and somehow I print or something like that and I have it now, he's worried. Um, how do you say that should go down? Because I kind of look at it like this. If I get pulled over by a law enforcement uh, person here in the state of Texas and I add like all the stuff you're supposed to plus my CCL and say, and I am carrying, sir, that usually de-escalates the fear right away because if I mean him harm, I'm not going to let him know that. Um, Correct. How, how do you, you know, suggest that, that go down?
2: Right. Um, if you're compelled to notify through whatever legislation, in effect, of course, follow the law. Um, if, um, if you're going to notify a police officer that you're armed, um Make sure that when you tell them that, uh, make sure you keep your hands in plain view sure. and follow follow the directions of the police officer on what he or she wants you to do. Um, that's not the time to demonstrate that you had good training and you know safe gun handling skills <laughs> and you say, hey, by the way, I'm armed, and you reach – for your gun to surrender the gun, but we don't know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, police officers are trained. Uh, we watch the eyes, but most importantly, we watch hands. So, if you're notifying the police officer that you're armed and so forth, keeping your hands where the officer can see them. And I'm not saying, like, you know, put your palms up on the roof of your truck or go to a surrender position and drop to your knees. Just keep your hands and you practice good communication and explain to the officer that you're armed and and what would you like him to do yeah
1: I found and three and six to be very three and six on the wheel it's visible you know it's it's highly visible I'm not doing anything to be quite de escalating because in Texas we have multiple situations where you can be armed even if you do not have a permit to carry in Texas, if you're in your vehicle and you're going from or to home or place of business, which you're always doing one of those things if you're in a vehicle in Correct. some way or another, um, you can carry armed within, you know, on your person within, uh, you know, like that'll send you to state penitentiary in New Jersey. Totally legal here. So there'd All be right. multiple ways that you would be legal in Texas carrying. And I kind of feel like it does de-escalate the situation, and obviously reaching for it is a bad idea. My my experience has been, and maybe it's just because of the way I handle myself, just don't put your hands anywhere around your weapon and keep your weapon on you. Where I get a little bit concerned is when you know step out of the vehicle and they want to disarm you and stuff like that. Well, now you're, you know, if it's a serious thing, I guess you're, you're following procedure, but if you're, Pulled me over because my taillight's out. Now you're disarming me and taking my property into possession. You know, and I'm, a, I'm here's here's how I'm legal. It, it bugs me a little bit, and I've seen people open carry activists, which I think maybe do more harm than good when they're asked to you know to put their weapon down or whatever. Say, I believe I'll hold on to my property. I'm not breaking the law. I don't know. I on, on some levels, again, I'm back to there's principle and then there's cutting one's nose off to spite one's face, and in this case, doing it in a situation where it may really be dangerous.
2: Right, and some of that, the where I work, the state where I work, the the law has evolved over time. There always was fairly permissive laws on carry, but legislation was passed and allowed uh, permits were um, easily, more easily obtained through better administration, so a lot more people started carrying. And initially, when... Officers were encountering people armed, you know, there was excitement on the radio, hey, I've stopped the car, the driver's got a gun, blah, blah, blah. And it's evolved now where somebody being armed and they tell you they're armed or the officers aware the person's being armed. Uh, you know, a car is a deadly vehicle <laughs> as well as a gun. I mean, there's all types of weapons. So I guess I don't want to say officers are becoming more complacent. About that, because once again, we're going to be watching your hands. But there's more of an acceptance, I guess, that people that you are in contact with are law-abiding citizens, and they may be armed, but that doesn't mean you raise the DEF CON level.
1: Yeah. Does that yeah. make sense? Well, it does, because so, like you said, so
2: far,
1: you're standing in, if you're standing in so part
2: on, of it, it's evolving.
1: Yeah, yeah. You could be standing beside your cruiser... You know, riding my ticket, and if I'm a jackass, I could run you over. And, you know, I mean, so, like, you're right, the car's a deadly weapon, too. But I think for so long, people in, in many places did not have the right to carry. And I think you're right. I think there was a big kind of tension when that first became, tension, right? And I think that, I don't think it's less of a hypervigilance on the, the side of Leo's, but there's less tension there. Well, this guy's got a gun. Of course he does. He's got a permit. Of course, you know, it's it's Arizona. He's allowed to have a gun, you know. And I I think there's a lot more of a feeling like that. But I do think that it raises an officer's hackles when you're armed during an encounter you don't disclose. Because, again, the guy that says, I'm armed, you know he's legally armed, or he wouldn't. You know at least he believes it, or he wouldn't tell you. You know he's not trying to get the drop on you because he wouldn't tell you. And it just seems like you're, you're safer and better off by disclosing.
2: Right, and a lot of people who are carrying when they're stopped in a traffic situation or whatnot, they're handing to you their license, insurance card, and carry permit, sure. and and that's a pretty good clue that they're armed. So uh, that's another way that you can ha- handle that type of situation is if you do have a permit, and and like we we're just discussing, um, many states. Your vehicle is more or less an extension of your home, so you're not required to have a permit. But if you do have a permit and you include it with your driver's license, that's helpful,
1: too. Sure, so. sure. because that takes away any question whatsoever at that point. So so let's kind of move on with some issues, because you, you, you do have some libertarianism in you. And uh, in your notes to me, you say that you're actually for legalization or decriminalization of marijuana, but you don't think it's good to use it, and you don't think it's healthy. So... How does that impact your ability as an officer to enforce that law? Uh, and I guess there's, there's a big difference between, like I have a, I wouldn't call him a friend, a past associate who went to uh, jail for about six months because he was uh, caught receiving a bale of marijuana through the T-tops of his Nissan Pulsar. Um and, and there's a bit of a difference there between that person and the person that's picked up, you know, with a half ounce of grass on them that if they were in Colorado wouldn't even be bothered. You know, but but how do you as an officer, when you when you catch somebody with marijuana or anything, that you just go, I don't even think we should be busting people for this with some level of a duty or responsibility to enforce the law. How 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 do you handle that?
2: Well, the uh I'd say sort of a little bit of a trend is um, user small amounts, user amounts of marijuana aren't as enforced as strictly, at least in my area, as it once was twenty years ago. That's that's one thing because society is changing. Uh, secondly, um, we both heard and you've mentioned it, but. Uh, one of the ways to avoid trouble with the police or any trouble in period is what don't do stupid things with stupid people in stupid places. So oftentimes with people who are doing stupid things in the stupid places with stupid people, they're doing other things to attract law enforcement attention, and they're doing other potentially uh, misdemeanor criminal type things. So if you have marijuana on your person and you're also getting arrested for other stupid things you might have done, then the marijuana charge is going to be part of the overall packet of charges that you're having to deal with. Sure. So, so if you know, I've worked in the drug enforcement aspect of that as far as pounds and bales, and um, yeah, that's that's a that's just an area that is way too complicated to address from a, from a law enforcement contact point of view, uh, simply arresting someone for marijuana. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, it's joked about, but there's a lot of paperwork involved in <laughs> an arrest yeah. and court time. And it's just, I've seen, um, I've seen so much time and effort has gone into uh, misdemeanor drug enforcement um, that we were, you know, talking about enforcing the lemonade stand laws. I mean, there's there's much, I believe there's much better time that can be used on that type of effort. The other thing, and you've mentioned it before, and I've mentioned it in training classes. Uh, body cameras, everything being videotaped, that's starting to reverse this trend a little bit, mm-hmm. because, because if you stop Johnny and Johnny has a half ounce of weed on him, uh, you know, hey, Johnny, I don't have a drug kid on I me. Mean, that might be marijuana, but why don't you turn that bag upside down and let the wind blow it all over, and you get out of my sight. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're videotaping that, and then someone that you come into contact later that really does need to be arrested and has marijuana, and then the attorney starts going, the defense attorney starts reviewing your videotapes, and you've got this... This one issue where you exercise discretion, but you didn't exercise discretion in that issue, you're done.
1: And and that is the reality. I also find it complete crap because officers exercise discretion on a daily basis when they're sitting running a speed track. Absolutely. And I drive by at 59 in a a, a 55, and you don't pull me over, and the next guy drives over at, at 62, and you do pull him over. They, they, or or when Absolutely. two cars are going the same speed and I'm driving my my uh, my my family sedan and the guy next to me is in a Corvette, you know the Corvette's more likely to get pulled over. So I mean that's just yeah. reality.
2: I know, but once again the the argument's been made and um, it's a it, it's a concern. So um, as I said, I don't for a variety of reasons I'm not. Sure. Uh, well and
1: I can see how it would work let's say I'm a defense attorney and I've got three times on video of you basically catching somebody with a couple you know, a couple joints or something like that and making discretion to let it go and disposing of it or whatever and then all of those guys are white guys and when you pop somebody even though it has nothing to do with his race it's a black guy the case I can make now in front of a jury is massive and if there's other charges I can correlate that all of this simply stems from the fact that this officer must be a racist because this all started over a little bit of marijuana and it started over – look at how this was handled in other situations with people who were not of my client's color. And and, and that is the kind sure. of like bureaucracy and and, and – and, 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 and to be fair to that attorney – He's doing exactly what he is supposed to do. He is providing the best defense he can under the law for his client, which he is obligated to do. That attorney has more obligation to do a good job for his client than you do as a cop to do a good job for your city, your your, your county, or your your city. That's all
2: right. His canon of ethics is to zealously defend his client, and that's that's a zealous defense. So... I guess in summary, you know, marijuana is not for me. And also, just to add an aside, the weed that's out there now compared to the Mexican ditch weed of the 80s that the stoners in my high school were smoking, man, the, the weed out there now is like mind-bending. I mean, there's, there's uh, I, I don't know whether there's been some GMO activity in the, in the weed industry or what, but it's incredible. I don't
1: mean uh, this bad, but I'm gonna tell you it's you guys' fault. You guys did this. And and what it's the yeah. it, it's the decades of enforcement um where everything went to being grown in, in hydroponic situations and grow houses, and that led to these you know, cloning and better strains <laughs> and stuff like that. Law enforcement created super weed, but but I would say this yeah, in the defense of people that smoke weed. And we still have zero deaths from overdose of it compared to what is the rate of death from alcohol ingestion per year, or from Adderall, or, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I I think, you see, the other thing was, right, so, this is talking to people of that walk of life, you make stronger weed, and you have legislation where it's a minor thing if you get caught with less than an ounce, so now you can carry around right. as much potency with an ounce as you used to be able to carry around with four ounces, and you just smoke less, right? <laughs> so this is right. – do you think pot pot potheads don't think things out? But they, they tend to um, actually think things no, out quite this well. Is,
2: this, is free, this is free market economy it, at work, yeah. sort of, That's in a pervert the, sort of way.
1: Yeah, it's the, it, it, it's, it's the free market com, you know, fighting with the state. So we're just kind of long, so let's kind of move on. Let's talk about like – so we kind of tap-taps tap, tap around this. How does one be respectful of an officer with not necessarily being groveling and rolling over, giving everything the cop wants to him? Because I see people that are activists, and sometimes I think that person was totally respectful of the officer, and they made their point, and you know they kind of did like the bait thing where they actually did something as an activist that's going to be videoed to engage in that contact, and they did. Find- and then I look at other people and go. You're a dick, and if I was that cop and I could find any reason to arrest you, I would have arrested you because you were a dick. So how do you balance that, like standing up for yourself without just being a dick to be a dick?
2: Right. Well, once again, though, the requirements of the job is to maintain the high level of communication and understand that you know whatever someone says to you, um, it's not personal. They are saying it to what you represent not who you are, and in some places the badge is called the shield, so shield is a good word. It shields you from the animosity of others, but that being said, uh, in contact, it never hurts to keep the verbal high ground by using general terms of respect, such as calling the officer by his title. Um, whether it's officer, deputy, agent, detective. Um, If you can read the name tag, calling them Officer Smith or Officer Jones, it's an easy name to to read. It never hurts to to maintain a cordial communication with the officer because as a supervisor and manager, um, uh, most decent police departments have good complaint systems and if you make a complaint that the officer had an interpersonal problem, that there that there was um, a problem with uh, courtesy and respect, if you, the complainant, maintained the high ground and the officer went off track, that makes it a lot easier for me as a superior to address the issue with the officer. That makes sense. Sure. So if it if it goes bad, it helps to helps to correct the problem with the officer. Um, the other thing, don't tell a police officer deputy what they can or can't do. Um, unfortunately or fortunately, depending upon how you look at it. Um, there are so many favorable court decisions that let police officers do things that you think are invasive to your rights for you. Uh, but if you maintain good communication skills, um, you still can ask and you can still say, I don't understand. Most officers will explain to you what they're doing or why they're doing because most police officers, being like most people are generally willing to talk about their job and what they're doing. So if you ask a question sincerely, uh, not a sarcastic type question, but you ask, like, why can you do this or why are you not doing that? And you do it in a good communication tone. Uh, by the way, maintaining polite eye contact is good, too, Um just engaging in solid communication principles, um, I think, is effective in understanding certain situations, understanding why we're doing what we're doing, and allowing us to explain to you what we're doing. Um, if uh, you know, if an officer is being discourteous or some other things, um, you know, that's an issue that needs to be addressed and. You know, I supervise twenty five officers and you know, I can only I can only be in so many places at once and watch what they do for fractions of time. Getting good feedback from people on a performance issue is really important to to those of us who want to make a difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I, I, I I kinda look at it like you should give a police officer the same respect you'd give any other human being doing their job and if they with the exception that when they begin to go off the reservation you're probably better off complying because if you have a legitimate gripe like I should not have been arrested that's something that you're more beneficial off having a conversation with a judge about i.e. also without the additional charge of resisting arrest. And I could go off on a tirade on how people have been charged with resisting arrest with no other charges, but I won't. But if you are charged with something and you are arrested for something and you go before a judge and, you know, you say this is what really happened, I, I think you're more likely, you know, if you're arguing, especially when you're arguing what the law is, right, that just doesn't seem like any time I've ever seen it done go well with police officers.
2: It it doesn't and it it doesn't and it just I, I mean you've said it yourself with on your tirades about HOAs there are so many living a law abiding life today is really tough yeah <laughs> when <laughs> when when you go all the way from the federal government down to the HOA uh, <laughs> living a law-abiding law abiding uh, life today is a little tougher than it was back in the 1800s brother I tell you but. But for the most part, most people do live uh, a, a decent life. Uh, one thing, just a little, uh, uh, the best disarming phrase I heard for a traffic stop, and I have repeated this to classes I taught and friends and family, but when you're stopped driving, and even if you know probably why you were driving like you're normal fast, but it wasn't that you were racing a Corvette next to you. Uh the best disarming phrase I ever heard was when I was discussing the reason for a traffic stop, the person said to me, You know, no, I don't know why you stopped me, but if I was doing something unsafe, I'm glad that you stopped me. <laughs> and that just that just totally <laughs> that totally defuses um this, took the total wind out of my sails as far as being uh, at the time I was assigned to a traffic enforcement unit, and that's my gun, go- and it's like, God, uh, yeah, so obviously if you're doing donuts in a parking lot or you're driving 105 miles per hour uh, down the interstate, know dang well why you got stopped, but certainly uh, you, you may not really realize why you were stopped or like you think you might have been going a little bit too fast, but um, we all know how that goes. When you say something like that, it totally changes the dynamic of the stop. And as you said, more often than not, a lot of traffic stops are just to make sure you're not a wanted ass murderer somewhere and you're given a verbal warning, and that just kind of helps that process. Yeah.
1: I know I got pulled over one time kind of doing a roll-through on a stop sign, and the streets were deserted. It was also pouring rain. Cop pulls up, move over, comes walking up. As soon as he got to the window, I said, "I'm so sorry." He said, "You're sorry you got caught." I said, "No, I'm sorry I made you get out in the rain." And he right. goes, "He goes, get the f out of here!" And he didn't even say that. He said, "You know," <laughs> said the word, "just get get the f out of here." And uh, so I just right. I went on about my way. <laughs> you ought to tell me twice. Yeah,
2: absolutely.
1: And I think there's a lesson there too. Like yeah. when you're being talked to by law enforcement, they tell you to move along. Go. And if you're protesting no. or something, that's different. But if you're, like, being pulled over or something, they just say leave, shut up and go away. Don't, don't. It's, I think it's a sales principle. Like, when the customer says they want to sign the contract, shut your hole and put the contract in front of them and get the P.O. <laughs> when, when a cop says, we're done here, shut your mouth and leave. Not because there's some vaulted authority, because your interaction's now over. You're clearly not being detained. Go on about your life. Like, you wouldn't have stopped them. So why do you want to continue the discussion now?
2: Don't snatch the feet from the jaws of victory. Yeah.
1: So could you talk a little bit about individual officers versus administration? I get a feeling a lot of times that it's a lot like education where the teacher's not the problem, the administration is.
2: Yes. um, Certainly is. But every organization needs management and guidance. I accept that. But most officers like to do good work, but... Sometimes good work causes problems and workload increases for others. And most administrators like lack of problems and do not like workload increases. So um, there can be an administrative preference for managing for lack of problems rather than managing for improved law enforcement services. And the best way I heard this, I already had these thoughts um, as I moved through some administrative positions with my agency. The best way to summarize this was I had a chief that said big cases, big problem, medium cases, medium problem, no cases, no problems. And he didn't, he had no appreciation for any outstanding cases that people would put together. If there were problems, if it caused you know, extra workload and so forth, the whining and groating and gnashing of teeth would begin. So yeah, the analogy with the educational system is 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 very true. It's not true everywhere and that's not true of every middle manager or every administrator or every chief of police, but that kinda is is a, a vibe, if you will, that gets transmitted through through the ranks. Um that um, work can cause problems and workload increases aren't always appreciated. So sometimes, you know, the underlying issue is to, you know, why don't you just, like, patrol subdivisions and just kind of pipe up on the radio every now and then and then clock out at the end of your shift. Sure. So...
1: Yeah, the guy that drives by you, is speeding, and you're five minutes from being end of shift. Eh, I don't want to do it right now. And I think it's an acknowledgement that police officers are human beings. They're people, like like anybody else. I mean, people say, oh, well, whatever. I've I've done that in my job, especially when I actually used to be an employee. Like I should do this, but I'm only ten minutes from leaving. So right. I think I can, you know, remember the movie Office Space. I think I can stare at my screen and pretend to work for the next ten minutes. <laughs> Um, so I mean, stuff like that happens. But let's, let's touch a, a kind of a, a touchy issue here as we get close to signing off. What, what about the issue of race? I hear the pundits on one side saying, you know, basically police officers are systemically racist. I, 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 you know, it's everywhere. It's rampant. I don't buy that. But then I also generally hear the law enforcement organizations come out and go, you know, there's there's, there's no truth to this whatsoever. Maybe, you know, there's, there's racists everywhere and there's isolated, you know, bad apples or whatever. But I've known law enforcement people that I've known were racist, plain and simple. And I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle there. And again, the problem is... Your dentist might be racist, but it's probably not a problem, right Because if you get bad treatment for a dentist, you don't go back. Um, your, your, your postman might be racist, but unless he's stealing your, your your post, it doesn't really matter. It, it, you know but if a law enforcement officer is a racist and it's not just they're racist against black people, racism is against anybody um, or bigotry toward any group, that can be a much bigger problem because of the amount of discretion they have and authority they have.
2: Yeah, I, there, is, there is racism. Because it's an organization composed of humans, there is racism. There, no doubt, there have been, are now, and will continue to be, some X number of racist police officers um, hiring Hiring methodology and training methodology does a lot to mitigate that. And also the culture that I talked to earlier mitigates that because most police officers are not racist. And to explain it a little different way of what you're exposed to as your career develops, uh, deviant behavior and criminal behavior is an equal opportunity behavior. Um, I've witnessed representatives of every race do despicable things. So the human race is capable of despicable acts. Doesn't doesn't necessarily mean what, you know, has nothing to do with race. And as I spoke about, like, we don't like slackers and we don't like, you know, as part of our culture, um, if some officer, some white officer was just stopping black drivers, um, that's not going to be accepted. And it, it's not going to be accepted by supervisors, and it's not going to be accepted by his peers. If deep down in his heart he's holding some racist beliefs and so forth, that might be a little harder to ferret out. But um, also, uh, most police departments now are – very multicultural, like the military. And, you know, I had friends who were minorities in high school, college. My roommates in the Army were minorities. We were great friends. I still keep in touch with two of them from to this day. And a lot of the people that I work with, a couple of my best friends are minorities. So I have no doubt that Racism does exist, and that can be a problem. It's something that we're on guard for, and it's that type of behavior just really isn't tolerated with most quality law enforcement agencies and decent police officers, because it causes more problems. It increases your workload, it causes more problems than it solves. Um, the it does get, you know, right now there are a lot of racial tensions and they're, you know, part of it's media driven for a variety of reasons. I think there's a desire in some parts of our society to cause a fracture between law enforcement and the community. Um, if, if anything, what is happening right now is there's a reluctance on some police officers to effectively police minority areas. And another aspect that does pop up and some of the minority employees that I've had work for me, I've had to reel them in a little bit when they're dealing with fellow minorities. Because, remember, I say law enforcement is business. Don't let your personal feelings, like this kid is making my community look bad and, and you, you know, you get real aggressive with him. You give him a public cussing out and lose your cool a little bit because he's incensed you. He or she has incensed you about their behavior and it reflects badly on your race. I've had to deal with sort of the reverse on that as a, as a supervisor. So, yes, I'm going to acknowledge it does exist. But um, really say, I think we've come to a point where that type of behavior um, just isn't accepted or tolerated. And if it isn't handled by supervision and management, those people are fairly quickly ostracized by their peers and will likely move on to something else.
1: Gotcha. Um, How do you think we can better improve effective relationships between law enforcement and people to make our communities better, because I think we're better off if we can work with law enforcement. But there are, there are challenges there where people are well not so trusting anymore.
2: Right, and absolutely because some of the structured or avoid the structured programs that a lot of police departments use as part of a PR program, because I think that's where some of the distrust comes from. Because like packaged propaganda, yeah, um, it's feel it's feel good stuff or Not the best analogy, but there used to be, it may still be going on, the DARE program, the Drug and Alcohol Resistance Education Program. Uh, There were a couple of studies. DARE was a total failure. Uh, You know, officers go into schools and talk to young teens about drug and alcohol resistance, and you talk to them about drugs, and this drug makes you feel this way, and that drug makes you feel that way, and ecstasy makes you more friendly and have better sex. That's why you shouldn't. Have. And then the drug use rates of their graduates was higher than the population in general. So stay away. I mean, if you want to go to a community meeting that's sponsored by the police certainly go there. But if there's issues that you want to be addressed within your community, um, it's, it's good to try and meet with mid-level managers. Um, you can always... You know, with community policing, with that ethic, there was much said about, you know, the officer on the beat, knowing what's going on in his beat, his or her beat, so they can fix problems on their beat. But the patrol officer doesn't have that much of an ability to exercise authority or control. They can report problems up the chain, but they really can't do much. Middle managers can exercise quite a bit of authority and decision-making, and they also speak administrative language and can send problems packaged up to the chief for those issues to be addressed. So rather than meeting with um, um, a sponsored program, uh, community members getting together or somebody in person meeting with mid-level managers to discuss some issues of concern in my experience, has always been pretty effective. And asking to meet with the chief of police, there are certainly great chiefs of police out there and great sheriffs out there. A lot of them, by the time you get the chief, and some sheriffs are politicians mainly, and they'll say what you want to hear and get you out the door, and that's it. So um, I think... um, this works for good law enforcement agencies or okay law enforcement agencies. If you have a bad law enforcement agency that serves your community, that's another, you know, separate kind of sure. issue. Sure. And, but, I, I would but, add, uh, like,
1: knowing the person is, is is the key. So, for instance... I love where I live because we're under the sheriff's department, so that removes just so many layers of bureaucracy. bureau. Like, sheriffs do not have time right. to do a lot of the stuff that, that, you know, city cops do because they'll respond to a domestic or whatever when they have to, but basically they're out, they've got a much bigger area for officer. But the sheriff's deputy who's primarily responsible for patrolling where I live is the, the, the when he was a kid, uh, in, in the Methodist church, when you get confirmed, a older person stands up for you in your confirmation, and not, when I say older, I mean like a couple years, like a youth that's just a few years beyond you. He stood up for my son in our church when my son got confirmed. So there's a trust right. there that can't be happen because of a meeting or a program, and that can't be just replicated. Not everybody can do that, right? But it actually is because right. I know him and his family and I think that one of the problems we have in large cities is there's so many people nobody knows anybody where and I think that's why like I've seen good officers make an effort to be known on a first name basis and actually get out and talk to people because then that person will trust them and not to do it because well I'm in the middle of an investigation I need you to trust me so I'm going to tell you something such I mean legitimately in you know non non-stress times, try to get that, and I think that we need more of that from law enforcement because if 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 Michael comes by here and says I need to know if you saw something, well I implicitly trust him, you know, and and I'm going to actually think about it. Where if it's a normal police officer, I don't know, I might be like, well, even if, if if you know, I don't think I know anything. I'm not going to try any harder. Like it was around, you know, two o'clock in the morning, and what, well, yeah, maybe, and you you might actually be able to help. And I think that implicit trust between individuals is something that we're lacking today. I think part of it is just the size and scope of some departments.
2: Right, that's part of it, and then and then some administrator will take that guy who's been developing, getting to know people in the area that he works, and from to the other side of the county or the other side of the city because there's a manpower need. Yeah, yeah. You lose all that. Yeah, Yeah. and, yeah, so absolutely, community uh, community policing techniques of of getting to know uh, people in your area, that that is good. But uh, for problem solving, if if there's a particular issue, um, like I said, the officer who works your area, can transmit that problem up but the middle managers are the ones that in most organizations can exercise and command and control and affect some change so, yeah. and part of that process by it you know it only takes one meeting to have with someone to know whether this person is a decent person and is, is going to work with me on the situation or I just got set a lot of BS and I get up. So, uh, there's no, no, uh, no good replacement for interpersonal
1: skills. In your app to, uh, to be on the show, you stated that there are quite a bit of intersections between the principles of good law enforcement and modern survivalism. You want to kind of finish up with those ideas?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, good police officers are everyday preppers. Um, equipment maintenance, our communications gear, uh, a little extra food and water, uh, for an unexpected long day, you know, knives, flashlights, small toolkits, first aid gear. And we're starting to get a lot of really good first aid gear. Um, we've started to get, we've issued everybody cat tourniquets that have saved several lives o- over the past uh, two years. Um, but, uh, you know, most police officers can turn an anvil into dust over a short period of time. So, you know, if our gear is good, um, you know, we can... We're kind of good gear testers, too. Um, but we also, you know, good police officers have to make family plans for critical incidents because guess who won't be home if the tornado strikes or the ice storm moves in? here in the southeast. Um, so, you know, you have to make arrangements for your family to be self-sufficient when times are tough, when you're going to be... Uh, not coming home for. Uh, think the think I stayed on duty constantly for 44 hours one time. So uh, that was during an ice storm. So um, the uh, as far as as far as the survival podcast community, and of course you stress this time and time again. Uh, if you can be self-sufficient for 72 hours in any type of disaster situation, and, you know, disasters for us in the southeast can be an ice storm. Uh, but, of course, tornadoes, flooding, you know, you might have to evacuate with a flood. But any type of disaster, if you can be self-sufficient for 72 hours, um, in most cases you're not going to need to rely on the government, police, fire, emergency services, um, and we are not going to have to worry about you. Um, you're sort of a, the preparedness community is sort of a force multiplier for us uh, so that we can focus on people who are really in need, the elderly, the ill, the young, and of course the hopeless and oblivious that live <laughs> life in a manner that they think that nothing bad is ever going to happen to them. So, a little bit of the intersection with the survival podcast community and preparedness in general is everyday good competent officers are are prepared for any variety of situations that um, it might take someone not in law enforcement or emergency service. It could take them years to encounter what we might do in a couple of weeks. So having... having Having good equipment, maintaining your equipment, having good supplies, thinking of contingencies, um, uh, round tabling, what if. Uh, those are all similar principles. And um, fa- planning for your family. Um, um, you've spoken a couple of times about your wife and a tornado that was in the area and you all were separated. And, and uh, you know, we have to have... Uh, contingencies for our families. And then, in summary, like I said, just to, just to wrap it up, if, uh, if, if it's okay by me if you don't need me. So, uh, ha- having, having as part of your, uh, fundamental prep a, a good 72 hour kit is, uh, uh, really advantageous.
1: Very cool, I want to say thank you uh for being with us today, Andrew. Um, this has been a great interview it's been vi- My pleasure, uh, eye opening and uh, I think people will get a lot out of it. I want to kind of finish up with the story get your your take on as we finish here, just on like so we talked a little bit about activism and you know like being rude to cops and stuff like that and, and why well, it's not a good idea. I think the other side of this is whether you 're right or wrong, it doesn't matter if you end up hurt and uh I, I grew up in in, in a, a a township called Cass Township, Pennsylvania. Townships are about usually somewhere near half a county in size and and it 's real rural area. We had one police officer he was the chief of himself, and they actually called him chief and uh, like the, the the city council minors will actually called him chief when they talked to him. but he was a really good di- guy his name was Jack Harley, and I was a young kid in, in rural America. And I did a lot of dumb shit like all kids in Rural America did. And he was the kind of cop you needed in there. If he caught you with fireworks or something, he just took them away. I remember one time he caught me and some buddies. I had a, a quart of beer under my jacket, and he said, "Give me the beer." And I said, "I don't have beer." And he said, "We can do this the easy way, where I take it away, or the hard way, where you go to jail." And I gave him the beer, and you know, he was that kind of guy. And he always was level-headed. He always de- de-escalated situations, and I don't know how long he did the job because I remember him being a fairly older man when I was a teenager, and about. Ten years ago, I heard from my dad that he had been, uh, dismissed from his job, and I had to look it up online to even believe what happened. There was a local kind of thug punk guy with a motorcycle, dirt bike, riding it on the, the paved road like you're not supposed to, and Jack Harley pulls him over, and, you know, they're having some discussion with it and all, and he goes back, and I think he's gonna write him a ticket. This guy's known, if he runs away, he ain't going nowhere, you know where he lives. It's just not worth anything. Well, the guy decides he doesn't want to be bothered today, so he jumps on his motorcycle and goes to take off. Jack Harley's sitting in his cruiser with it running, and apparently the guy doesn't know, you know, hill or high beams about how to out-accelerate a car with a motorcycle, which is pretty damn easy. And he rams the guy off the motorcycle with his cruiser. Um, Yeah, you you know, a career gone. Um, Correct. and, And to me... That's just this guy has been dealing with shit like this, probably at that point for over 30 years, and all human beings have a breaking point. And I think it's important that when you're dealing with law enforcement, you don't know that that guy just found out he was being sued for divorce and, 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 and having the cont- custody of his kids uh, contested that, that morning. You don't know if he just got balled out by his chief. You don't know if his friend just got killed. You don't know if his friend just died of cancer. You don't know what that person's mental state is so when there's contentions i think for personal safety you know that's again if 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 you if you're going to get arrested you're going to get arrested you ain't going to prevent it from happening by resisting um that's a judge conversation uh and then but i will also say that i have had one officer in my whole life that i mean, got pulled over for speed and the guy was freaking he looked like he was keyed up on roids out of the gym and I simply said, I, I would prefer that you contact uh, your your supervisor, have another officer here, the way you're acting, I don't feel safe. And he, he kind of settled down and was willing to do it. And, and I guess there's a point for that with an overly aggressive officer. But in general, you know, think of that story, folks, because I can't believe to this day that, that this guy did this. This is a guy that, you know, being a young kid, throwing corn at people's roots and shit like that on Mischief Night. I dealt with a lot as a kid, and I never saw this guy be unreasonable. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to any human being.
2: Absolutely, it can. Uh, and by the way, what you had said about the officer who was um, seemed to be highly agitated, what you did was absolutely right, and um, asking for uh, someone else to be there is is very appropriate, because there is a huge amount of stress, and we haven't discussed this at all. There is a huge amount of stress in this job. I have never laughed as hard. I have seen some really funny stuff, <laughs> but I've also cried really hard. Um, during my career, three of my best friends that uh, I worked with and one that I went to mandate with um, had been shot and killed in the line of duty. A fourth one... Um, was hit broadside by a drunk driver and was a paraplegic for several years until he finally died. So this job is serious as a heart attack. Bad pun there. But, uh, uh, yeah, the stress is huge. And uh, we do a lot of training to identify uh, stress management. And, and even some of it's the routine stress. I've worked at least half my career from 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night to, to 5, 6, 7, 8 in the morning and then gone to court and then taking my children, my daughters, for family things and doing homework and going back to work and, like, work, sleep-deprived, uh, handled high-stress calls and low-stress calls. Uh, there's a huge stress factor involved. And what you said... May have been exactly it. He snapped a little bit and reverted back to some fundamental human nature that person's taken off, and I'm going after them. And I think I said at some point that in this profession, you're only as good as your last decision, as your last call, and and that's what happens sometimes. Yeah. So.
1: Well, so, uh, Andrew, th- thank you for being with us today and being so forthcoming and honest about this because this is not typical, and, and and I appreciate you and I appreciate your service and uh, I appreciate the work oh, that you. you do. I know there's times when it seems like I'm anti-police, but I am not anti-police. Um, I am so pro-police that bad officers make me disgusted. That that that's the reality Absolutely. here. Well, that's
2: Absolutely, it's, it's. I find it hurtful, and um, uh, I too don't like the name "bad apple." Um, there hasn't been. Oath breakers is a good term to use. It hasn't really caught on um, in upper management or whatnot. Um, uh, but yeah, it's very hurtful to. Uh, um, you know, I've been hurt in my job. As I said, I've lost friends who've been serving the community. And when there is an oath breaker who has um, tarnished um, the reputation that we all all work hard, because everything I said, most officers, most, they want to do a good job. They may have different motivations to get there. But like any of us who make a living, we, we, we want to be good at what we do. So anyway. Once again, I thank you for allowing me this time, and it's been very enjoyable speaking with you.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and uh, if, if something topical comes up that your expertise can help with us with us, uh, please let us know, and we'll have you back on the air. And again, thank you for being with us today.
2: Sure. Have a great afternoon.
1: All right, great inv- uh, great interview with a good guy. I know we don't agree on everything, but I think we agree on most things, and that's kind of where I want to leave off today. Uh, while I was away for two days, not really away, but just working my ass off here on the ranch to get ready for uh, what's coming up in uh, a couple weeks here, uh, I, re- I aired an interview by Lierre Keith uh, on the vegetarian myth. Now, Lierre is a person that I don't agree with on a whole lot of shit. She describes herself as a radical feminist. That's about a 180 out from an egalitarian view of the world that I have as a voluntarist. Um, I don't put any group above any other group. Um, you know, we're all humans and we all have gifts and we should all use those gifts to the best of our ability. Um, and I would say she falls on the left side of the spectrum of politics, which, I, by and large, don't, because I don't really fall on either the left or the right most, because I think the state should do nothing in in most instances. Um, And I I got one commenter who basically is ad and attacking her, in spite of the fact that in that interview... Uh, she never felt, it has a five-year-old interview, by the way, never felt compelled to bring any of that ideology to the interview. She came on the show, much as Andrew came on the show, to talk about a specific subject, to talk about veganism, vegetarianism, and her journey through 20 years of it, what it did to her health, what she learned in her research, and one of the most well-thought-out publications on the issue there is, and yet that person's attacked at hominem because, oh, they disagree. And I know sometimes I can be a polarizing individual. But I think if we can't have discussions with people that we disagree with, by and large, on a lot of things, about the common areas where we do agree, we're screwed. And I'm going to try to bring you guys more interviews like that one from the past and this one today, where we get the opposing view and we can do it in a cordial manner, even if there's some points of contention. I think it's important understanding each other, and there couldn't be a bigger survival topic in the world today than learning how to deal with people that either have authority that we don't think they should have or dealing with people that are politi- politically ideologi- ide- ideologically opposed to our view uh, in, the, in the areas where we have common interests. Because it's amazing that when you do that, a lot of times the other sides will actually relook at their stance because they've assumed that you'll never listen to anything they have to say. Just a thought. Well, if you like this show and the work that we do, you should consider helping us out uh, by doing your shopping through tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, uh, you can see the Amazon deals of the day and the reviews that we do of products on Amazon for you there. Uh, check it out, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day is Maladon flaked sea salt. wah! Well, well, I know, big deal, it's salt. And it you know what? You know what it tastes like? It tastes like salt. It's not like salt that tastes like the best salt you've ever eaten or anything like that. But i I just discovered this stuff, and it's something that chefs use a lot. It's the texture. This stuff's in flakes, and it's not just in flakes. It's in these flakes that are like these little pyramid-shaped flakes, and the crunch is out of this world. This is not a salt you throw into your soups or into your steak marinade or something like that. This is a salt you use as a finishing salt, a lot like the Hawaiian red salt that I've talked about in the past. Because it doesn't just give that salty flavor, it gives us, it's a ridiculous crunch. It, it, it's amazing what it can do for like some sauteed vegetables. You just give it a little finishing sprinkle or up on top of some steak, uh, to have that texture to go along with that salt flavor and blend with whatever it is you've cooked. It's, it's that simple. There's not a lot more to it. Uh, but you can find that review and you can always do your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, dot com. Uh, which is on the website. you see a little tab if you just go to our main website. It says T-Spaz. Click there. And we have that review of the item of the day there for you every single day of the week in general. We bring something new out to you every day. That's ours for today. Again, T-Spaz.com. Okay. With that, let's talk about the uh, song of the day today. And this song is by the Beatles. And it is not She Loves You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's Mr. Postman. And uh, John, who put these uh, together for me, uh, gave me some notes with it. And uh, he said the reason he selected it, other than from the fact that, like, the Beatles are on fire right now in America and changing the face of music in America, um, it is such a contrast to today. You know, if you think about the song, it's, it's wait a minute, Mr. Postman, you mu- you got to have a letter for me. That's basically the crux of the song. The mailman comes, and he doesn't have a letter for him, and his girlfriend's far away on a trip, a vacation, whatever, and you got to have a letter. i got to hear from her. I haven't heard from her for such a long time. Now, like, there was long-distance phone calls back then, but I also want you to remember this is not even back in the 60s. It's back in the 80s. When I was a kid in the 70s and the 80s, if someone called long-distance, you shut your whole stopped whatever you were doing, you went and got on that damn phone and talked to him now because it was expensive. So the main way that people stayed in touch with each other over distance was with mail because for a postage stamp, you could send a letter. And I remember the Army being that way too. I think the Army was the last time I really waited to hear from someone by a letter. And I served until 1993. So when I got out, the Internet wasn't quite booming yet, but... You know, I moved to Texas and kind of left my old life behind me and and just kind of went on with my life and and long distance had gotten reasonably affordable so I could make a phone call if I needed to and, and what have you. And I, I just didn't really wait on letters anymore. But I bet you most people would say around 96 was about the time that there was enough going on with text and email and things like that that most people stopped really waiting on a letter. And by 2000, it was done. And I want you to think about it as you listen to this song today that if you have a a friend or a loved one anywhere in the world, that either by text, email, or with cell phones being like unlimited voice, I mean, you can pretty much call or talk to or immediately communicate with anyone today in milliseconds. Milliseconds. I got a text during recording part of this show that I responded to today. Just hit the mute button and responded to it real quick and was able to actually be conducting an interview and respond to a text, which is a two-word response, but still instantaneously. But all the way back here in 1963, when you were waiting to hear from someone and the postman came and there wasn't a letter, you might have said, please check that bag again. There might be something in there for me. Old town times have changed in many ways. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough for it, even if they don't.